Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar, but you already knew that from listening to the intro there, didn't you? Well, this week, I'm excited. I say I feel like I say that all the time, but we got some great guests on the show, and I say that all the time because we do. Um, this week, we're talking about psychology and cognition, metacognition, and how the way we think and the shortcuts, the psychological th- shortcuts that we have in our brain affect the way we interact with, cl- with clients, with other clinicians, with other practitioners, and the way we make clinical decisions. And my guest this week is the perfect person to talk to about that. His name is Zachary Walson, or Dr. Zach- Dr. Zachary Walson. He's the National Director of Quality and Research for PT Solutions Physical Therapy. So he, um, I th- he mentions it at the very beginning of the interview, kind of talks about his, his career path, but he got his, his bachelor's in science in human nutrition, foods, and exercise at Virginia Polytech Institute and then moved down south to Georgia where he went to Emory University to get his doctorate of physical therapy. After graduating, he did an orthopedic residency program with PT Solutions and kind of stayed there. He talks about starting basically as a staff therapist and kind of moving up into operations through being a clinic manager, then a multi-site director, and then kind of moving into the operations at a higher level for PT Solutions. What he does now, his primary role is really comprised of overseeing research and all the research efforts that PT Solutions does. Uh, developing and teaching continuing education courses for their staff, uh, developing quality improvement initiatives throughout his whole practice, PT Solutions. And he's been published here, there, and everywhere in, in Spine and the Archive of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Um, and he's presented at tons of, of conferences on this. So we're really excited to have him on the show. And I think our conversation hopefully will be very interesting for those of you who are Maybe even you're, you're in operations, you're in kind of an administrative role, but you're trying to make decisions on how to improve care for individual clients in your, that are going through your, through your programs, to your facilities, understanding how people make decisions, both your patients, your clients, and your clinicians, really helps you understand the best ways to make changes, one, to make them adopted, and to two, make them effective for for the end means that you have in mind. What do I mean by that? I mean, primarily, if you have an issue around maybe clinical decision-making, and you know that maybe there's therapists or clinicians out there making decisions that are not in you know the best, if you would, best practice or whatever, and you want to change that, understanding how to make that change more easily adopted by your clinicians obviously is going to get you a better result, right? So we talk a little bit about that. We talk a little bit about in this interview why and how people lean on 
uh, cognitive shortcuts, if you would, to make decisions when it's easier. And we talk a little bit about you know, uh, biases and underlying heuristics. So hopefully you find this interview very interesting. I know I had a, I had a good time chatting with, with Zach about this. So without further ado, here is Zachary Walston from PT Solutions talking about cognition and heuristics. Hey, Zach, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, this is going to be great. I love talking about this kind of stuff. So why don't you take a moment and just tell us all a little bit about who you are, what you do, who you work for, and then we'll kind of talk into the, into the, the topic at hand, which is all about cognitive biases and heuristics and metacognition. Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is Zach Walston. I'm the National Director of Quality and Research with PT Solutions Physical Therapy, and I'm the coordinator of our orthopedic residency program. And so I've been with the practice for about six years now. I started at Emory, so it brought me down here. I did the residency program. I started in operations, uh, kind of the usual start with a private practice where I was a staff therapist, moved myself up into a director and multi-site director. And then it was a few years ago that I really started enjoying uh, kind of a, a side gig. I was doing the practice focused on research and on our quality improvement initiatives. And so I took that on full time. And so since then, that's what I've been working on. I do, uh, I kind of run our research for our practice and work with a lot of local universities for uh, collaborating on different research projects, uh, our mentorship program, um, doing a lot of teaching, whether it be within the practice or at conferences. And yeah, I, I've just really been enjoying it. Now lately, since the pandemic has started and a lot more uh, stuff from home, it's been a lot more writing and uh, doing stuff like this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And your website, you've got all kinds of articles on there that are pretty interesting reads. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate so, that. And we'll link to that in the show notes, but it's, it's ZacharyWalson.com. You've got um, articles really about what we're going to talk about here, which is cognitive bias, heuristics, metacognition, and how all of that kind of affects patient interactions or patient clinicians interactions and experiences and outcomes. So for those who might be kind of new into this whole behavioral psychology aspect of, of healthcare, why don't you define kind of what is a heuristic, what is metacognition, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so a heuristic in uh, the simplest terms is a rule of thumb strategy. It's when at any given time we are bombarded with so much information that we need to try to navigate at any given time that we develop mental shortcuts. And so a heuristic by nature is not you know, inherently good or bad. It depends on what we're trying to accomplish with it. And then uh, we need to recognize when we need to slow down and think about, okay, is this something that requires more cognitive awareness thinking, or is this something that I can just uh, immediately follow the information away? So for example, uh, availability heuristic is a very common one. If you are there treating a patient and ev doing an evaluation, I don't need to know every single ounce or bit of information possible for that patient. I can weed out some data. When it becomes an issue is when I home in on something and I don't dig in deep enough. Right, so that's where you uh, talk about a, a kind of a, a, a form of availability heuristic would be like the satisfaction of search. This is something that's talked about a lot with radiologists, where they immediately see the first thing that explains a symptom, 
And then they stop all their searching and say, okay, boom, I found the answer. I don't need to look at any other information. Uh, and so that would be an availability bias that hinders our clinical practice. And so there's a whole bunch that I'm sure we'll get into some of them, but uh, and, and then essentially all these different rules of thumb. Uh, metacognition is the fun process of thinking about thinking, right? It is really just our reflection on how we make decisions. And so I get really interested in this stuff uh, because a lot of what our education is focused on is just rote memorization. It's just, here's a bunch of facts. Here's how you just memorize it and then regurgitate it, uh, which is necessary in order to pass tests and get your boards. Yeah. Uh, to but get it license, definitely hinders right? clinical practice. <laughs> Exactly, which is the goal of school. Uh, but once it comes to clinical practice, we need to be able to do a lot more than just rote memorization and regurgitation. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of want to dive into that too, because you know, we we talk about it all the time. We hear about it. You know, I, I was a professor up until a little bit ago, um, and we we talked about it with all the students, like clinical reasoning. We're pounding that into you. Like, we want you to be able to think about um, like when you decide on a treatment or what evidence to use, why are you using it? And really leaning on you know everything from like narrative reasoning to all, to all of that kind of stuff but at some at some point in every one of those lectures in every one of those classrooms you can kind of see it still on the students faces even where they're kind of just looking at okay what do i need to learn in order to get the a on the test or to move on in this course as opposed to taking it to the next level which is this stuff that i'm learning in class or this stuff that i'm learning in this course is hopefully or in reality is going to be what you know guides my thinking when I'm treating a real patient. Right. So do you find in some of the stuff that you do, like, are you having to almost re-educate these new clinicians as you're hiring them in these practices to do that or? Yeah, we, we do. And it's definitely something that is, you know, prevalent even after they get out of practice. And so I do most of my teaching in our residency program. And so there is a lot of unwinding. We always, Tell residents that the first three months is really going to be the period where we tell you all the things that you don't need to know that you learned in school. Yeah. And that's, it, it's kind of like you go through the five stages of grief where you're starting with this denial about absolutely not, especially when people learn about pain. And then oh, there's yeah. denial, there's anger, eventually acceptance down the line. But, and then that's what we also see typically around months four and five is really when it's the worst for residents. It's in that January, February time because one, they didn't get a Christmas break. So first time ever dealing with that. <laughs> And then two, it's when you really have an identity crisis of, oh, dear God, do I know anything about physical therapy? And what's interesting, though, is, you know, you talk about there with the test, what do I just need to know to pass the test? Even when you get into residency and clinical practice, that question just shifts to, what do I need to know to treat the patient? And, and it's just, it's still just give me the answer. So if I have an acute low back pain patient, tell me the strict thing what to do. So I manipulate and then I do these exercises and then I do this other manual therapy and I send them home and I see them this many times a week. And it's still a mindset of tell me what to do so I can memorize and then just apply it rather than really being able to critically think through and then also be able to appropriately apply research to clinical practice. And I think that's something that's also uh, missing is this the ability to look at research uh, as a whole and know what to take from research and how to apply that. So uh, a lot of what our first few months are focused on is your understanding of critical thinking. It's your understanding of how to read research and apply it and not so much of, hey, I'm just going to give you the answer on what to do. 
Yeah. So you're, you're leading a lot of those open-ended questions, right? It's not uh, two answers, a yes or a no, but it's more of a gray area. And that's how it is with every patient, right? So you're right. trying to get your, your residents to kind of accept that. And they hate it because then they hear that the most, the, the phrase that everyone cringes with, the it depends. Yeah, those yeah, two yeah. words that no one, everyone can't stand. I remember when I was in my neuroanatomy, or not neuroanatomy, just neurosymposium, that was, it seemed like the answer to everything in the field of neuro. Um, but it applies to orthopedics and everything as well. Yeah. Now, how much of this desire just to have a, have a protocol or have a list of things to do or like a procedure or process, is that just inherent in our biology because of the way we've you know, developed, like you said, these heuristics, these rule of thumbs probably kept our ancestors alive, right? Like if mm -hmm. something had big, sharp teeth, we wanted to stay away from it. Or if something looked tasty and ripe, we wanted to eat it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is natural for us to use what's called type one thinking. And so psychologists largely divide thinking into two categories. There's type one thinking, which is the fast, really uh, snap decisions that we make. And then type two thinking is the lazy part of our mind where we really have to mobilize and take time and reflect and review. And so that's really where bias comes into play, that it's natural for us to adhere to things that conform to our beliefs we already have. We want things to make sense with the story that we've been told. And so it's really hard as a new clinician, it takes more effort for me to forget a lot of the stuff I learned, reconceptualize, go learn more new information and apply it when it's also going to be something that I'm not as skilled with. And then we've got loss aversion because uh, we don't want to apply something that then gets a negative outcome and we have regret with that. It's a lot easier for me to just keep doing the same thing I've always done. And that's when we also have the issue of measuring, is it the, do I get a good outcome or do I get the best outcome possible? Because there's a lot of things that we do that can get an outcome. And I tell, yeah. I, I mean, heck, there's in, in the clinical practice guidelines, superficial heat has evidence to support. It gives a short-term mild reduction in pain. There is clinical support that it's beyond placebo, superficial heat works. That doesn't mean we should put, be putting hot packs in everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's always about that idea and probably the availability bias dives, you know, addresses this as well. Like if you're only working on those superficial levels, like, yeah, you can do manipulation, you can do modality, you can do whatever, whatever kind of passive treatment to the patient and they will feel better. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, I've never felt this good. And then they're going to leave your clinic and come back and be like, oh man, it came back or it's worse or it hurts. It didn't go away because you're not dealing with that precipitating factor, right? Yeah. And the fact is, if someone wants to come into the clinic, you can ask them, okay, what's your favorite TV show? All right, uh, what kind of individual do you like to engage with? Match them up with the right therapist, put on their favorite TV show, make sure they enjoy themselves for an hour and they're going to feel better. Their pain is going to yeah. go down. And if we just measure our success by the fact that pain went down in the short term, when uh, it was Runge et al. 2020 this year, uh, they did a systematic review and they showed over 12 studies that within session changes have no predictive value for the plan of care whatsoever. So you can get someone down from a 10 to a one within the session. That doesn't mean the whole plan of care is going to be successful or it's predictive of what's going to happen in subsequent sessions. Uh, so we have to look beyond this within session change or just this outcome bias where it's, we just look at an outcome to justify the means without looking at you know, what was the actual intervention that was done and was it an efficacious intervention? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then talk to me a little bit about, we've kind of covered availability bias, but let's talk about, we've, you mentioned confirmation bias and kind mm -hmm. of this idea of 
like we we inherently want to support whatever we've believed. Now you mentioned pain. I think everybody that's learned anything about pain in college or in in their programs learned it wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but pretty much. So so let's talk about this confirmation bias. Kind of what mm -hmm. is it, and how is this affecting? what I do as a clinician, what you do as a clinician, what these, what folks do when we interact with patients, because it, it's greatly affecting the interventions that we select, the, the research we choose to pull from, even how we, how we communicate with the patients that we're dealing with, right? Yeah, I think confirmation bias is gonna be one of the most common ones you're gonna see. It's one of the most prevalent ones out there. And it really is the, it's having congruency with what we already think. So confirmation bias is that we are more likely to support any kind of data or reasoning that supports our current beliefs. And we're going to ignore or refute data that is in the face of our beliefs, right? So it's the, the whole thing around if someone is trying to research why a technique should be used, they're going to go on a PubMed and let's say it's, I want to say that shoulder mobilization is the best thing that you can do for subacromial pain. And they're going to go into Google and PubMed. They're going to search shoulder mobilization to improve shoulder pain. And then they're going to take all those studies that show any kind of effect and just use those to support their belief. And uh -huh. then anytime someone brings up evidence that might refute it, oh, let me poke all the holes in why that's a bad study. And so confirmation bias is basically what you see all over social media. It's where... <laughs> And it combines with the other ones. And so it combines with, okay, I'm going to support my confirmation with availability of just using the data that uh, I want to support it. And so, yeah, it really does hurt our clinical practice because we also are going to remember things more. And this goes into availability bias that we are, tend to remember more recent events uh, that, compared to ones further down the line. Uh -huh. And so if you think about confirmation, I'm going to remember all those times that shoulder mobilization helped my patient. And all the times that didn't help my patient, I'm going to have all these excuses on why not. Uh, yeah, well, the patient came in and they, you know, they had McDonald's before they came in. Or they didn't sleep really well that day or they, they never do their exercises at home. So it's outside my control. And so confirmation bias really stops us from updating our clinical practice. Uh -huh. So you kind of fall into a rut of doing the same thing over and over again. And it worked <laughs> on the last, maybe the last patient or last two patients. So it's got to work on every one of them, right? Exactly. And then it's that definition of work. You know, is it that it was the best thing or just was a thing yeah. uh, that corollary saw an, a, an improvement? Yeah. So then how do you begin teaching your residents about kind of breaking from this idea of, uh, you know, wanting to stick to what you believe? Because like you said, it's anybody who's on Facebook these days is seeing all the posts about people, everything from, you know, COVID to the election to everybody else is wrong. And I know it's right because I looked at this, this cherry picked information that shows me, you know, what I, what I want to believe. Absolutely. Um, so there's two people that I think of when it comes to this and one is from, and I'll give the quote here. It's from the book, how not to be wrong, the power of mathematical thinking, uh, Jordan Ellenberg. He wrote, believe whatever you believe by day. Uh, but at night, argue against the propositions you hold most dear. And so his way of practicing, he's a mathematician. Uh, during the day, he works to write proofs for why his theorems are correct. And then at night, he tries to prove everything that he believes wrong. And Charlie Munger does the same thing. So for those who aren't familiar, Charlie Munger is the uh, business partner of Warren Buffett. And he's basically the modern day Benjamin Franklin, just a, a scholar who pretty much reads and a voracious reader of everything and any kind of topic you can think of. And 
his belief is that you can have an opinion when you can argue the opponent's side better than they can. And so what I teach the residents to do is, and we'll go through this exercise. So it's time to look at the evidence for lumbar manipulation. Uh, I have them for the next week before their next session, go look up all the evidence that says you should never manipulate a patient ever. And if they can find that evidence and then they convince themselves not to, great, you've updated your clinical practice. You're not using a technique that doesn't have the support behind it. And if they go through that exercise and decide, no, through everything I've looked at, it's an appropriate technique, then great. Now you have a stronger backing for why you should do something. Uh, so to combat the confirmation bias, it's trying to prove yourself wrong and it's looking up the data against what you currently believe. Yeah. So you, um, you have to be very intentional about it. You can't just mm -hmm. think that you're, you know, overcoming your confirmation bias. You actually have to go out and practice looking for things that undermine your position, so to speak. And it's hard. It's uncomfortable, uh, especially because you've had all this time experience that has built a belief. You have it for a reason. Uh, and now you're not trying to prove yourself wrong. And most people are very uncomfortable with and don't like the feeling of being wrong. Right. And so, uh, yeah, combating confirmation bias is very challenging for that reason. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if you've read, uh, Annie Duke's book, thinking in bets. She talks a lot about all of, you know, confirmation bias and how you know, she was a professional poker player. So how she would mm -hmm. overcome it and all that. Um, but I mean, I guess it does affect the way your the clinicians would be interacting with patients, right? Like nobody, I feel like from a thinking back to when I was day to day clinical practice, like I didn't want to tell a patient it depends. <laughs> no, right. And there's even evidence that shows that confidence behind a, a clinician's confidence level helps with placebo. It helps improve an outcome. And so, if you seem like you're not really confident what you're doing and the patient doesn't trust, then you're not going to get as good an outcome. So yeah, you don't want to, you know, when I say try to prove yourself wrong, that doesn't mean that you don't have confidence in the clinic and what you're producing. It's, you know, when you're in the clinic and you are treating a patient, you want to, within ethical parameters, maximize placebo. Uh, you want to you know, make sure that risks are addressed, but you're trying to talk up the intervention, that this is something that can help that individual. But then when you are studying, when you are reflecting on your uh, treatment that you provided, that's the time for you to really reflect and say, hey, was that the best thing for me to do? It's not necessarily in front of the patient that you're saying, hey, no idea if this is going to work, but hey, we're going to give it a shot. And that's not yeah. the way to approach it. Yeah. We're going to flip a coin. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> you feel better afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Please don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because this whole, this whole idea of you know, cognitive biases on the clinician side and, and how we think and how we pick interventions really ties into on the patient side too. You mentioned it, placebo and perception is reality for, for everybody involved, right? any human, like what you, what you expect is what you perceive and what you perceive is your reality. So I guess this, this topic is pretty, it's exciting for me because we, in the last couple episodes, we've had some folks come on and talk about the biopsychosocial model and how we should, you know, use that as a, as a jumping point and how we explain pain to patients and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And this is kind of the other side of it, right? It's the whole clinician side and understanding our aspect, like how we can, how we have an effect on patients and their, their perception, but also on what we're doing and what we're constantly, hopefully learning and building into our practice, right? So this is one of those, like it is very much uh, different sides of the same coin. 
Yeah, this is a foundation piece of clinical practice because all those other ways that we treat, they're going to evolve. You know, we talk about a residency program that we hope in a few years that we look back on what we're teaching right now, that it looks very different and that we can look back and go, mm, that wasn't, that was the right thing to teach at the time with the given information, but what we know now, it should look very different. And an understanding though of how to approach data of critical thinking of recognizing biases that's a foundational piece that should be along with our clinical practice our entire career that way we can continue to update practice so yeah this is something that i think needs a lot of self-training though because we don't get a lot of this training in school because the emphasis again it has to be there's only so many hours and they have to pass boards is on the rote memorization yeah yeah and then you know no one wants to be wrong no one wants to think that what they're what they're doing is wrong. So even overcoming that hurdle is, is big too. Once they get into mm -hmm. practice, like I passed mm -hmm. the boards, it means that I passed the boards because I knew the information. So now you're telling me the information might be wrong. What are you talking about? Right. And what hits even harder on that too is the student debt. And so that's where actually some cost fallacy can come in. And so we see that yeah. when new students come in or not even just school, but any letters we get behind our name. And so if you become dry needling certified and then more studies come out that say, eh, maybe it's not all that effective. Or if you have letters that you get behind your name on manual therapy techniques, and then those come under fire with research, you, your sunk cost is essentially that I invested time, money, and effort into learning this skill set, And so you just continue to invest more time, money, and effort to justify your past investments. And so, you know, Daniel Kahneman, and I'm got some here, uh, one of the best books and most influential books I've read on this topic, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, he yeah, great talks, book. It, it's, uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of my first recommendations to any new graduate coming out that we should adopt more of a mindset of an economist and that we should never have our actions focused on justifying past decisions. Instead, our actions should be focused on future gain, right? Our present decisions on what's going to happen in the future. And so you invest all that time, money, and effort to get the piece of paper, the one that's behind me right now on the wall. And while it may suck, heck, Lindsay and I, my wife, she went to Emory as well. We have a houseless mortgage basically right now with all our student debt. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it, it does suck. You want to be able to use that information, but it allowed me to treat patients because it's impossible to get a license without the schooling. So uh, that's where I think some cost hits a lot as well as we want to justify all the time, money, and effort we spent before. Yeah. Well, and even, even if it isn't money, which in, in, in a lot of cases it is, like you said, one of the problems in healthcare is that it costs so freaking much to become licensed and that drives the oh, cost yeah. up. But um, like even learning, right? Like you're going to, you're telling me I'm going to take three hours out of my Saturday or whatever and read some studies and think I have a handle on let's say manipulation or, or some modality or something like that. And then the next Saturday, <laughs> you read up some more and they're the exact opposite, right? So yeah, and you don't want to go back and say, Oh, that was all wasted time. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's very true. And then you're even going to have, and I'll sometimes hear this from individuals that, well, okay, well, why haven't bothered? The research just says basically nothing works. Every systematic review I read says low quality or very low quality evidence. So uh, if nothing works, why does it matter? And again, it, it's what you're focused on. So Yes, if a lot of the manual therapy or modalities say it doesn't work and those are the sexy tools in the toolbox, yeah, you, you got to let them go. No tool is undroppable. Uh, I don't, that's not my, that's from Jordan Ellenberg and I, I always relay that. 
if your clinical practice has to just focus on education exercise, then become very good at education exercise and building self-efficacy. You don't have to perform manual therapy or these other techniques just to justify, uh, you know, being a professional physical therapist. You know, you can still be a professional and help patients by having a, a more narrow focus on what treatments you're giving. Yeah. Well, and the reality is if you're the, if you're able to provide long-term outcomes anyways, does it matter if you did the sexy ones up front or not? Exactly. Right. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. All right. Um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, we've kind of circled, the, circled about this a little bit, but you've mentioned Daniel Kahneman a couple of times. He talks a little bit about theory-induced blindness. Mm-hmm. So ex- explain that to us a little bit and kind of how that affects our clinical practice, because it, it does kind of tie into kind of availability bias and, and cognitive, uh, not cognitive, just confirmation bias. Yeah. So theory-induced blindness was coined by Daniel Kahneman. And again, just a lot of his research, and he's really the one who pioneered a lot of this stuff in bias and heuristics. He's an economist. That's what he's trained in. So a lot of this is an economy principles, but it translates to clinical practice very well. And theory-induced blindness is when we have this you know, theory that we have uh, something that uh, can be used to defend a viewpoint that we have right now. It's really challenging to update our theory with new evidence that comes out. And so, uh, for example, this is where pain comes into play a lot that we see a slow adoption of new pain theories or or new understandings when we have someone that already, with the confirmation bias, fits the narrative. It it makes sense. And so, uh, for example, the gate control theory came out in 1965, and it wasn't really adopted widely until the 80s. And even still, you see a lot of people who don't really abide by even gate control that have a very biomechanical focus on pain. It's almost like a Cartesian model right now. Uh And we're even past gate control theory because that doesn't even explain everything like phantom limb pain and other uh, types of conditions. And so this theory induced blindness is, hey, I've got a theory that supports my viewpoint and you're resistant to the new updated theories that may come out. Yeah. Well, and it's easy when you're dealing with with all these outcome measures too to kind of like stick to those ones that you know, like maybe it's that like numeric rating scale of pain, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I got them down from a 10 to a two. So it's working. <laughs> exactly. And then we've got insurance companies that that's what they value, right? They care about the pain. They care about the uh, outcome tool. And measurable, so yeah, measurable outcomes. Exactly. And then that's what patients a lot of times are going to complain of, and they might associate that with success as well. Saying, yeah, I know I can do all these other things, but it still hurts. And a lot of times, you know, an insurance company might say, hey, or studies say that a two out of 10 pain reduction is clinically significant. Most people, if they go from eight to a 10 to a six out of 10, are still ticked off that they're in a lot of pain. They're not saying they're celebrating that, cool, you got me down two points. Yeah. Yeah, for real. Well, and I, I think the whole topic of pain anyways is, is just kind of convoluted because the research is always coming out and changing. Like at this point, we understand pain is a lived experience. It's not just something going on in the tissues. And mm-hmm. so tying metrics to it from a standpoint of like, how are we going to reimburse for this? How are we going to you know, say that what we're doing is quote unquote clinically significant to me it just seems way we should not even be thinking in those terms because we still truly don't understand or we haven't really adopted like this understanding of what pain really is right yeah but it it makes it really hard on the clinician then because you have to put those things in your notes Mm -hmm. you have to justify your care and so you've got the physician maybe who's reading the notes but you've definitely got the insurance company that says no no we're going to dictate your success 
based on pain and outcome tools. And outcome tools are basically just more fancy pain assessments. Yeah. But then we have the patient goals, which is largely what they care about. But sometimes those goals are well beyond the quote unquote functional improvement that Medicare or other insurance companies say. So you have this dissonance that's going on, this disconnect, and it makes it really hard for a clinician to figure out what do they weigh and what treatment should they provide. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the big things too, is that we, we haven't come up with outcome measures that truly, truly measure the quality of the services, right? Cause we're still based off of these like, you know, pain levels and other outcomes like that. Yeah. So I don't know there will ever be just one. I think you have to look at a lot of different things. Uh And so the way that I look at uh, the quality of a, you know, quality measures in our practice is I have six different things I look at. So I, we use photo for our outcome tool. And so we have outcome measure, we have satisfaction, we have net promoter score. We have the patient generated referrals, the self discharge rate and the cancellation rate. And by putting all of those together, I get a better picture of what the value of care is, what the compliance of care is. And that gives me a better picture on the overall quality rather than just looking at one measure, because each one of those measures has significant limitation. But when I combine them all together, I get a better picture of what the clinical practice looks like. Yeah. Yeah. You can't look at all of them at each in silos because you, you know, mm-hmm. your clinical outcomes might be awesome. And then you realize that only 40% of your patients are finishing their course of care. So <laughs> right? well, exactly. And, and that's where, and this is actually what got me really into um, biases and reading this and finding the book, thinking fast and slow uh, was because I started out in looking at monitoring our practices outcomes. And so our photo outcomes, when I first started looking at them, I first got access to them when I was a clinic director and it was soon after I graduated residency and I was ready to be told how awesome I was at treating. I was expecting <laughs> to open that portal, see green everywhere, glowing reviews. I'm amazing. I just finished residency. Um, and then when it told me that I was in the 10th percentile nationally and my patients basically couldn't stand me, um, I had an identity crisis with my ability to treat. And I got access to the whole practice and realized that our whole practice was God awful. And come to look at it, there was an issue with how we were collecting the data. And we had this large gap between the final survey and the final visit. And so we cleaned all that up. But still, we had subpar, mediocre outcomes. And through training and and building them up, realized that there were a lot of biases that were hindering our advancement, that it might be uh, confirmation, again, on what outcomes we're going to look at. Yeah, photos are not a very good representation, but look how good my cancellation rate is. Or, yeah, I know I cancel, have a lot of cancels, but I've got a ton of Medicaid patients. That drives that up. But, man, you should see my patient generated referrals. They all sing my praises. And so we really have to look at the big picture because it's easy to explain away single data points when our biases are really heavily influenced. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, you can always explain one way. It's hard to explain six away, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's move on then into into kind of digging deeper into this rabbit hole. You you talked about on one of your articles. You talk about all these different kind of effects and cognitive biases that kind of affect the way we interact with data and clinicians and and uh, patients. We've kind of talked about sunk cost fallacy a little bit, but t- talk about the halo effect because that one's a pretty interesting one from a, like a patient satisfaction standpoint. But then also, like you said, a patient's impressions of a clinician might you know, positively or negatively influence placebo effect and outcomes. 
Yeah. So halo effect, and you kind of hit it there. You can look at it from two ways. And so on the patient side and really just with the halo effect is essentially that the very first impression we have on someone, we then use that to make judgments on anything and everything related to that individual. And so if a patient makes a very good, or you make a very good first impression on the patient, uh, they may determine that not only are you a great clinician, you're probably a really good cook. You're probably a great <laughs> father as well. And, uh, you know, you can probably go ahead and play a mean guitar. Like they just basically, the halo effect is that you use that first impression to determine everything else about them. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah. And so that first impression with a patient really can influence. And uh, there's evidence to show that uh, from an expectation standpoint as well, that the way that you dress, the, I said the confidence, the way that you carry yourself, that has an effect on you know, the placebo on how well your interventions are. And so that can influence it. We also see it on the therapist side from uh, holding your therapist accountable to a clinical standard. And so that's something that we've sometimes dealt with in our practice. And that, uh, for example, if you've graduated our residency program, that means by default, you have to be a high class clinician. You have to be great at what you do. And any outcome that says otherwise, I'm going to ignore it because you graduate the residency program. And that's something that I felt that I needed to, after I graduated, take a look in the mirror and go, listen, bud, you've been out one year. There's a lot for you to learn. Don't care if you graduate residency. Uh, so halo effect is both on the patient and on the clinician side uh, in terms of collegial relationships. Yeah. So part of it is kind of being brutally honest with yourself, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. And that's what a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So we talked about halo effect. That kind of ties into this whole idea of, of fundamental attribution error too, right? Where mm -hmm. maybe a clinician or even a patient, because you can both sides of the same, different sides of the, of the same coin, right? Um, where people almost, they attribute whatever, maybe if the patient showed up late to like a, the, some core personality defect on them, right? And how does that affect clinical interactions? Yeah. And so, um, and that is a, is a big thing. Again, it, it, the fundamental attribution error is an easy way for us to explain away a, a bad outcome as well, because that's a lot of what all these biases are, is that us not, like we just talked about, um, being brutally honest with the facts. And so uh, a typical error that occurs, again, is that judgment or blame uh, that you put on patients for, for them, and you're blaming the individual uh, rather than looking at the specific treatments that you uh, may provide. And so, um, I mean, we see this a lot in clinical practice. I've uh, had this issue in clinical practice as well, um, that it's going to be searching for uh, that different excuse that might explain why someone is uh, not gaining that positive outcome, whether it be uh, different lifestyle habits about them, whether it is their attitude and the way that they're acting in the clinic. Um, it's just something where I'm able to blame away why I didn't get the outcome that I should should be getting in the clinic. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> then we've we've kind of spent some time talking about all of the the problems, right, or all the <laughs> the potential the yeah. potential downfalls to to our brains working the way they are. So how can we overcome them as clinicians? Like what steps do we need to put in place? Is this a, is this a culture thing? Is it is an organization thing? Is it an individual thing? Is it a combination of both? Like how do we, how do we kind of wade through this behavioral psychological muck we find ourselves in to get to the point where we're 
we are open to new ideas, to new treatments, to new even outcome measures in a way that's helping improve outcome for our patients. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of them. And so you're never going to eliminate bias. That's just not, you don't want to eliminate bias. The, the key is that when we can have kind of cues and recognize when we need to navigate this cognitive minefield. And so uh, one of the best things to do is a lot of reflective practice. And so if you think about it from an individual standpoint, it could be that after each individual session or on your drive home afterwards, you reflect back on your cases. When you're writing your notes, it's thinking about what could have been better and what did you do well. Uh, one of the other benefits is to get uh, an external opinion as well. And so there's the danger of something called groupthink, where you just basically get a bunch of individuals in a room together. You might see it in meetings where everyone just agrees with one another. They don't want confrontation. The first person or the loudest person to talk, uh, everyone just agrees with. But instead, what I'm referring to is that if you finish an evaluation, you go to a colleague and say, hey, here's what I found. This is what I'm thinking for the plan of care or for next steps. What are your thoughts? Uh, because we all have different perspectives, right? We all have different experiences and bring something different that we might have recognized something. Uh, if you're not invested in the treatment, so if you're not the treating clinician, uh, a lot of times your biases are going to be a lot lower. You're not going to have the same mental armor up, if you will, that you might recognize something that the treating clinician didn't. And so getting a lot of other people involved, I like from a large scale using something called the after action review, which is something that's common in military, uh, where basically you ask yourself five questions. Uh, what was the intended goal? And so you can look at it from a large scale about a certain metric, or you can look at a small scale, what you want to accomplish with the patient. Um, what did you actually achieve where you're being uh, brutally honest? And then you're asking, what are you going to do next time? And how's it going to be different? Right? So you're really going through this systematic process of figuring out what were the intended results? What did we do? What did we get? And how are we going to change it in the future? Uh, and so that's really a lot of how we work with biases is, it's recognition. It's being vigilant. It's not trying to eliminate them. It's recognizing when they might derail you. Yeah. And again, it has, a. I love the idea. This has come up on a few different podcasts, the idea of reflective practice. And there, you know, I like the, the five questions that you laid out and, you know, whether you use that or a different method, but the, the idea of from an individual level and then from an organizational level, standing back and saying, like, is what we're doing really working and looking at it in an honest way, right? As opposed to, does this outcome measure that we really like that we tend to perform well on keep on looking well, or are we looking at everything? Because that kind of addresses that, that whole cognitive bias standpoint as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you can even use something called a pre-mortem where you basically try to figure out beforehand what's everything that could go wrong, right? What's everything that could be a problem in the future and try to address on the front end. Uh, but like you said, and there's a reason why reflective practice is being talked about so much, it is a key skill uh, to develop and refine in as you treat patients. Yeah. Are you, are you finding like, so I've talked a little bit about behavioral change on the patient standpoint. Like we understand that what we're trying to do a lot of times, especially like in, in the wellness and, and health promotion side of our practice is getting patients to adopt healthy lifestyles. And you, you can use like the trans theoretical model or, or whatever you choose to like try to build in some component of this new change into your patient's lifestyle. I'm assuming what you're doing with your, your clinicians, when they, especially when they're new grads and going through your residency program, you're pumping them into your, into your practice, is some form of that, right? Like you're, you're trying to, to tap into their behavioral sequence so that they can begin adopting this into just their regular practice, right? 
Yeah, and it's it's getting them to you know want to be able to integrate in their clinical practice, and so it's a lot of questions, a lot of seeking to understand. It's a lot of figuring out where they're coming from and where their baseline is and what their goals are. And so a tool I really like is motivational interviewing, oh, yeah. uh, where it is you know just finding out where the other person stands, and it's it's kind of showing the difference between here's the goals you have, not me, you have, and the current behaviors and where they might not align. And then having the individual that you're speaking with outline and, and develop the roadmap on how to close that gap. And so it's really getting them to verbalize, to use change talk about these are the ways that I'm going to achieve those, those outcomes that I want to have. And then the other piece is also, it does take time. It takes some patience. Uh, one thing that I'm still learning uh, and it, it definitely takes time is you can't punch people in the face with facts to get things yeah. done. Right? Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Fast is the one who said that he had an awesome uh, talk. I think it's available for free actually at the pain summit uh, this past year. And he talks a lot about that, that if we're going to have clinical quote unquote debates or conversations, it has to be seeking to understand them both ways. It can't just be the, Hey, let me tell you all the reasons why I'm right. And you're wrong. Yeah. Well, and basically that's ultimately communication, right? Effective communication is understanding the other person's point of view and almost being empathetic to it to the point where you can understand where they're coming from before you start throwing out your, your cognitively biased facts, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it can be challenging, especially depending on the situation you're in. You know, if I'm in a residency situation where I am the lecturer and they are the resident, it's hard not to just say, Hey, this is what you need to do because I said so. And so even when you're in more of an authoritative or leadership type role, it still has to be that uh, conversation where you put into the share pool of meaning and everyone understands what's going on. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting near the top of 45 minutes here. So if you could give maybe like a, a main takeaway or two for listeners. So the most of the people listening to this show are, are clinicians or they're people that run organization, healthcare organizations. What would you want them to know about metacognition, about heuristics of cognitive biases and how we need to one, be aware of them, but how they interact with what we do with our patients? Yeah, I would say that this needs to be uh, a foundational focus of, of teaching, of clinical education. And so when you're developing any kind of leadership programs or just mentorship programs in your practice for those that are you know, leaders in clinical practice, or if you are a new graduate clinician coming out and you're looking for different ways to self-educate, whether it is that you books that you read or you go attend courses, I think this needs to be a foundational thing that you're able to educate in and then layer information on top of. And so if you know how to reflect on your clinical practice, if you know how to recognize biases when they might be hindering your thinking or clinical practice, when you know how to read research and apply research, then you can go out to the CEU courses, you can go take on the other classes, you can read a bunch of research and figure out how it applies to your clinical practice. It's a lot harder to go backwards and then to review all this stuff and go, okay, now let me sift through my memory banks to figure out what should I get rid of and what should I keep. Instead, this should be the start that allows you then to have a system in place to more accurately accrue and apply the data that you receive throughout your clinical career. Awesome. Well, Zach, thank you very much for being on the show. Where can people find you, find the work that you do? Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, You can find me on my website, uh, ZacharyWalson.com. I also write on the PT Solutions blog. Uh, It's PT Solutions slash uh, Live Clinically. 
And then you can find me on the major social media. So Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Yep. We'll link to all those in the show notes. Thank you very much, man. Have a good one. I appreciate you too. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Zachary Walston from PT Solutions. Again, he's the director of quality and research over there for PT Solutions Physical Therapy. We'll link to all of his stuff in the show notes so you can go follow him, connect with him. Really great guy. Really enjoyed talking with him. I love how the conversations that I get to have on this show, doing this podcast with folks, really go beyond just the very superficial. I mean, even even this topic, which is, you know, psychology and cognition and heuristics and metacognition, we still got into some rabbit holes, which I really like. Um, just a you know, a little bit behind the scenes here. I don't prepare a whole lot for um for life, just kidding, um, for, for these conversations, because I like having the freedom to go wherever the conversation naturally wants to go. So typically when somebody reaches out, wants to be on the podcast, wants to do an interview, you know, we might chit chat back and forth over email or over zoom or something like that. I'll put together a rough outline. That's maybe got some guiding questions and then that's it. You know, if they've got a book or something, I'll read the book. If they've got something else, you know, I'll read it, reference it. But that's really all the preparation that I do. I don't like scripting a lot of things. I don't like having scripted questions. And the reason for that is it allows our conversation to kind of naturally flow into areas that are of interest to me and to the to the person being interviewed, which I feel gives you, the listener, a better a better experience one and then you know probably more interesting listen. So um, but we talked about pain and we talked about placebo and we talked about you know specifically this this past interview about how the cognitive biases that we have affect the way that we make clinical decisions but then on top of that kind of deeper than than that first level of okay the way you make decisions is kind of affected by you know the heuristics we have in place kind of our perception of the world kind of the way we make decisions but underneath that is this especially in healthcare, especially in areas like pain and neuroscience, where we're still getting a lot of research coming to the forefront and being published almost, I feel like, at least once a month, a a new study comes out that kind of changes the way we look at neuroscience and the way the brain perceives pain and the way the brain's role is in the pain process and the lived experience of pain. So on one level, you've got this kind of, this very, it's not even superficial, but this superficial cognitive level where these are how, these are the mechanisms by which clinicians are making clinical decisions, making decisions about research, when to apply it, when to use this uh, intervention over that intervention. But underneath it is this kind of rocky ground of this this very free-flowing environment, if you would, of, of research that is constantly changing or constantly being added to kind of increasing our understanding of it. And our job as clinicians is one, to be able to make the best decision possible for our patients. But as, as Bronnie Thompson mentioned on one of the interviews, one of the early episodes of this show talking about chronic pain, like our job as clinicians is really to be knowledge translators to our patients. And 
if we are stuck in a in an environment or kind of like a mode of thought, a mode of being, where we're not willing to, or we we might be, you know, superficially or on the on the surface, we 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 say we're willing to to try new things, to apply new evidence as they as it comes out, but we have these cognitive biases that are preventing us from doing this. We could potentially be doing a real disservice to our our patients, our clients that are relying on us not just for us to touch them and, and feel better, like in, in the sense of physical therapy or chiropractors or something like that, but really we could be doing them a disservice from giving them the knowledge and the skills that they need, that they would benefit from to take charge of their own health care. Because ultimately what we want is to empower patients to become drivers in their own health care. Um, and I love that, that Zach and I were able to kind of have that conversation around the metrics that we use for pain and how we objectively quantify our clinical impact and how even though that it might be quote-unquote clinically significant for the patient, it, 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 you know, a six or an eight really doesn't make much difference. They're still in pain, right? So I think I mentioned it before, but I, I purchased a, a physical therapy clinic here in my home state in um, back at the tail end of 2020, this episode I think is going to, to air in 2021, uh, but early parts of 2021. And part of what really, really excited me about getting back into private practice, I've been a consultant for years. I've been in academia. I've been really removed from direct hands-on clinical work. And part of what really got me excited about buying this practice, about being able to be in a position again to to affect patients' lives in a in a real way is is this idea of empowering patients to become drivers in their own healthcare. I think as we move forward, especially post, you know, I hate to to keep talking about COVID and stuff like that, but post COVID, where this this move into telehealth and using using virtual based healthcare solutions and and things like that, and moving into a value based re- payment model going forward, what what really allows us as clinicians to provide the most value to become more than just a handyman or a Mr. Fix-It is that ability to one, create real relationships with our patients, but then use those relationships, leverage those relationships to empower them, to empower them to be able to manage their own pain, to manage their own dysfunction, to become drivers of their own healthcare. I keep saying that over and over again because I just wrote a bunch of copy for the, for the, for the clinic that I'm, I'm trying to market now. And, and that's one of the, one of our main tenants is that we are going to we are going to empower patients to be drivers of their own healthcare. And I just, I think that as we move forward as an industry, boots on the ground clinicians, but also administrators, operations managers, everybody involved in healthcare really needs to be thinking about what we are doing and the decisions that we're making from a business standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, and then check that with this calling, this higher goal, if you would, of empowering patients. And that's all I've got for today. If you like the show, it would mean a lot to me if you went to iTunes, gave us a rating and review. It helps people find the show, helps people uh, find out what we're doing here. 
Um, if you want to be notified when we drop new interviews, we drop them every other week, and then every now and then you get a bonus interview in the off weeks. Um, you can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and sign up there. We'll shoot you an email whenever we drop a new episode. If you want to learn more about what I do with Rehab U Practice Solutions and some of the some of the things we got going on there, you can go to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab the letter U practice solutions.com. And under our resources page, I've recently made all the 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 webinars that I've done over the last you know couple of years, the courses that I've done. I've just made them free. Uh, so y'all can go to the resources tab. I think it's called uh, webinars and courses or something like that. You can sign up and, and see them, see them for free. There, we've got a couple courses on the biopsychosocial model, on patient engagement, marketing, and positioning for healthcare organizations. So go check it out, RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. Um, until the next time, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.